The legal views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute or contain legal advice. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Break the Business Podcast. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. Happy New Year, everybody. Woo! Should old acquaintance be forgotten, all that good stuff. Let me hear that horn again. Yes, indeed. It's been too long. I, man, whenever I miss an episode of stuff because of holidays or whatever, I just, I feel pent up. I have so much stuff to talk about and I miss getting in front of this microphone and talking to y'all. And so it's good to be back. Happy, happy new year, everybody. Welcome to the Break the Business podcast. It's cold in Miami. And I know, I know, I know, I know I sound so spoiled when I say that because I am still speaking to you from the warmest place in the continental United States from what I can see on any meteorological map. And the rest of the country is suffering right now. But I can tell you, for, for Miami, this is still cold. And and I know what you're saying. I'm being a big wuss. I'm being a wuss. Ryan, you got to toughen up. It's it's below zero where you are. And it's not where, you know, it's below zero where I am. And it's not below zero where you are, Ryan. So stop complaining. And here's what I would say to you for that. Yes, it's colder where you are. I concede that point. Point conceded. But... You're also more prepared for that environment. Yes, it's colder where you are, but you are aware of that set of circumstances. You know that can happen where you are, so you have the appropriate clothing for that. You have big, thick winter coats, and you have the sweaters, and you have the long underwear, and all of the things that make that frigid environment tolerable. I'm in sunny Miami. We don't have those things. We don't have the requisite materials that are needed to brave 40-degree weather because we're just not built for it. I don't own a long underwear. I don't own sweatpants. Like, I wanted to go jogging today. I didn't have sweatpants. I don't have long athletic pants. If I'm going outside to exercise, I'm going to have bare legs because that's all I have for exercising outdoors is shorts. And so when I went jogging this morning, when it was 40 degrees, I had to wear pajama pants. They were ridiculous plaid pajama pants. I was getting teased by my neighbors, but that's all I had on me because I'm a Miami and I'm not prepared for this environment. So great on a curve, people. That's all I'm saying. Cut me a little bit of slack. But I think things are supposed to be warming up in the next few days, whatever that winter bomb, meteorological bomb, snow bomb thing, whatever that Weather Channel's calling it. I think it's supposed to be dissipating, so I'll get back to just normal weather again. Thank God. And, oh, it's just so good to be back. And Happy New Year again. I, I wonder if any of y'all have New Year's resolutions. I think in your line of work, as independent artists, as indie musicians, as indie artist entrepreneurs who have to make plans, who have to make business plans, who have to set goals. I think New Year's Day and New Year's Eve, the whole New Year's season is so important because it gives you the opportunity to start 2018 with a clean slate and make some real plans for your career. And, and if you're an indie musician, you haven't done this, I'd strongly recommend it. Make some goals for what you want to do in 2018. You know, call them New Year's resolutions if you want to, but you, know, you got this whole year ahead of you. You got 12 months to get things done. You know where your point A is. You know where you are now. Figure out where your point B is. Where do you want to be at the end of the year? And set some goals along the way to get yourself to where you need to be. Even I'm doing it. I'm not a musician, but I certainly have some career goals and some personal goals. And I can tell you about one of my personal goals. And I am a little cautious about bringing up this personal goal of mine because I have been told some by some psychological studies that I've read that when you tell people about the things you want to do, you're less likely to accomplish your goals because, you know, they'll say to you, oh, good job, congratulations, and then that gives you all the satisfaction you need, and then you don't actually accomplish the goal. And so I'm afraid to tell anybody about this goal, but I also think that if I do tell everybody about what I want to do, that you'll all hold me accountable. So all of you within the sound of my voice right now, I'm about to tell you what my New Year's resolution is, and it's a big one, and it's a tough one, and it's one that I'm probably not going to be able to do, but I'm hoping if I tell all of you about it, 
you're going to hold me accountable. That So sometime by, I don't know, mid-March, when I completely forget about this New Year's resolution, I expect tweets from all of you saying, hey, Ryan, how's that New Year's resolution coming along? Don't you slack off on it. So here's what I want to do. Over the next 12 months, I want to train for the Miami Marathon. So the Miami Marathon takes place every January. And obviously the one that's happening just happened and I was not able to participate in it because I'm uh, out of shape (laughs) and uh, in no condition to run a marathon. But I'm thinking with 12 months of training, I could run the January 2019 Miami Marathon. Question you probably have. Hey, Ryan, have you ever run a marathon before? I have not. I have run a half marathon before. Six years ago. No, it has not been six years. Five years ago. That's still pretty bad. Five years ago. I ran the half marathon, the Miami half marathon, 13.1 miles. But five years ago, I was also in much better shape. When I ran that marathon, I was 20 pounds lighter than I am today. I had good cardiovascular health. I could go up the stairs without needing supplementary oxygen. I could brush my teeth without my stomach jiggling. It was a a better time. It was a simpler time. But I want to get back to that. I really miss just the way I was five years ago in terms of just being more on top of my health. And so that's my New Year's resolution. I want to spend 12 months training for this marathon. I have a lot of work to do because even just, I'm not even in close to half marathon shape. I'm not even in 5K shape, but I'm hoping after 12 months, I can get to where I need to be. And so that's what I'm going to do. I've already started the marathon training regimen. I'm doing like two mile runs right now. I'm barely getting through them. Good Lord. How did I just let my body do this? How did I let myself go? My Lord. I mean, I I mean, I mean, I'm actually looking at my, my half marathon medal. I have it sitting on my windowsill right now where I record this podcast. And it's just, it's looking at me, mocking me, reminding me of a bygone era where I actually took care of my body. And I want to get back to that point. So that's my new year's resolution. 12 months to train for 26.2 miles. And I hope all you listening will hold me accountable. And in exchange, I'll hold you guys accountable too for whatever your New Year's goals are as an indie artist. Let us know, what do you want to accomplish in 2018 to move your career forward? Send it over to breakthebusiness at gmail.com or let me know on Twitter and uh, I'll hold you accountable just as you're going to hold me accountable and we'll all kick 2018's ass together. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the Break the Business podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Those are our four platforms. We really, really love getting those rates and those reviews and those subscriptions. They move us up in those respective platforms' algorithms, which allows us to spread the word, get our message out to more indie artists just like you, and build out this community more and help more people and help yourself along the way by raising the profile of this podcast. You can reach out to the Break the Business podcast at our email, breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R and like the Break the Business podcast on Facebook by searching Break the Business. Why would you want to get in touch with us? Well, I'll tell you why I want you to, you know, let me rephrase that. I'll tell you why I want you to get in touch with us. (laughs) And it's because I want to hear from you. I want to hear questions that you have. If you have a question about your music career that you want us to answer on this show, that you want to benefit from our expertise, Email us, breakthebusiness at gmail.com. We have a couple great listener questions this week that have trickled in over the holidays, and I'm going to read them off and answer them on the air, and I'm excited for that because, honestly, the show is better when I'm answering your questions as opposed to just gas-bagging about whatever I think is going on in the music industry right now. So I'm thrilled for that. Or if you just have topics that you want us to talk about on the air, let us know. Uh, Breakthebusiness at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R. Speaking of knowledgeable and just getting some great advice to move your career forward, our guest this week, one of my favorite people out there in the music industry, Erin M. Jacobson. We've had her on the show a couple times before. She is a fantastic L.A.-based entertainment attorney. She is the founder of Indie Artist Resource. She provides a lot of great resources on the legal and business side for indie artists. She is so fantastic. She's so knowledgeable. She's been on the show before. And you're going to be hard-pressed to find somebody who has a better combination of industry knowledge, legal knowledge, and just true respect and admiration for indie musicians. And, you know, she, you know she, she's, she's far and away more knowledgeable than some of the stuff I bring to the table. I remember one time 
Um, Aaron and I were sharing a speaking engagement at the National Association of Music Merchandisers Conference, the NAM conference. We were speaking uh, one after another about you know music industry advice and legal uh, tips and things like that. And my speech was all basically just, you know, I, I winged it. I got up there and went, record labels, bleh, don't do it. Indie music, yeah, record labels, bleh. And I did that for like an hour. She gets up there and she's prepared. She's got notes. She's got bullet points. She's got real knowledge. She had the receipts, man. She was so good and just made my winging it where I just got up there and went, record labels, bleh. She just she smoked me. And so I'm glad I have her on the show now so you can benefit from her expertise as well. There's two things I want to talk to her about, and I'm excited to have her on in the next segment. First of all, there's a ton of legal news going on. Uh, Wixen Publishing is suing Spotify for $1.6 billion. That's billion with a B, my goodness. And for because they're saying Spotify isn't paying their these songwriters their mechanical royalties. So Spotify keeps getting hits with these lawsuits. And every time they try to settle a class action, boom, another lawsuit comes out. And all of this while Spotify is trying to go public, which I can't imagine is going to be good for their stock price. And I want to make more sense of this because I know it affects indie artists. And so I'm excited to have her on to talk about that. And also to talk about the Music Modernization Act, which is, from what I've read, a bill that's going through Congress right now that's supposed to kind of fix this Wixen publishing lawsuit problem that we're uh, encountering. And also, I want to have her on because it's 2018, it's the beginning of the year, and I figure she would make a great guest to be our first guest for 2018 because now is as good of a time as any to get your legal house in order. And so I kind of want to ask her, what are some legal activities that you as an in, that indie artists should be doing right now so that they can have a great 2018. What can they do to get their legal house in order? What are some big legal boxes that they need to check off and start the year off right? And so that's what I want to ask her when she comes in in the next segment. But before we bring her in, and man, I'm excited to talk to her. It's been too long before I've since I've talked to Aaron Jacobson. I should not let as many episodes pass without getting her insight on stuff, because she's so, so great. Before we bring her in, I do have a listener question that I want to talk about in this segment, and I'm, I like this one. This is a good question. Dear Ryan, my band is working on our first album. We're going to release the album onto streaming platforms and iTunes using CD Baby as our distributor. But before we release, before we release the full album, I should really learn how to read, <laughs> we want to put out a single from that album first to get our fans excited. What is the best way to release one single off the album first to help promote the full album and then eventually release the full album. First of all, great question. I I love that you're, I mean, the fact that you already know about CD Baby, and you know you already have a plan for your streaming platforms, it sounds to me that you've, you've really put some thought into your launch strategy. And I'm hoping that behind all of this is a much more detailed launch strategy in which you're really looking at all the things you want to do to, to amplify this album project. Because an album's a big deal, it's not easy to make an album. You know, it's not easy to produce 12, 13, 11 tracks of content. And so whenever you're doing an undertaking as big as an album, make sure you have a really big launch strategy behind it. Don't think you have to just release your album right away. You know, have a little bit of, you know, lead up to it. You know, do some promotion. You know, take, don't be afraid to take a few months to promote this thing before you get that album out there. But anyway, to your question... I've actually had clients who've run into this question before, and your first instinct might be to see if there's a way to maybe get one of your singles distributed on CD Baby separately from the rest of the tracks on the album before you distribute the whole album on CD Baby. And see, this can be kind of tricky, because generally distributors like CD Baby, TuneCore, those indie distributors, they'll charge you twice if you try to distribute the single and then distribute the album. They're going to charge you for distributing the single by itself and then try to charge you again when you release the whole album with the single on it. Now, the only exception to this is if you release your album on CD Baby, CD Baby can set things up with iTunes where you can set up a pre-sale for your album on iTunes where the album's on iTunes, but people can't download yet. They can only pay for it. So they'll go onto iTunes and they'll see your album, they'll see your artwork and they'll see all the tracks, but they can't actually download anything, but they can still pay for it. They can pre-order it. But as part of the pre-order process, you can, CD Baby and iTunes will let you select one song as what they call an instant gratification track. 
that your fans can download prior to the launch date of the album. So they, they, they see the album on iTunes. They can pay for, they can pre-order the album, but they can't pay for any of the tracks except for one track, which you've opened up as your instant gratification track. And that technique will at least allow you to get your song on iTunes, but it won't get you. And so, you know, that kind of acts as like getting a single out there, but you still won't get the full distribution of that single on things like Spotify and Pandora. Um, so you can't really do everything you want to do in terms of getting a single out there on the CD baby platform without paying for two different releases. And I know you don't want to do that. So here's what I can recommend to kind of amplify the launch of your single. Um, you really want to give some thought to what your purpose is for getting the single out there. It's not just to make money directly. What you're trying to do with that single is promote your album, to create awareness, to get people excited about your band and what you guys are doing with this album project, especially if you're early in your music career, as you said you were in your question, because it's your first album. So really the name of the game here is awareness, 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 getting people to know who you are. And so to do that, you have to get your single in front of as many ears as possible. You need to look beyond, and to do that, you have to look beyond the CD Baby platform um, and find ways to get your single out there for free and to get as many people listening to it. Now, if it were my band, I would take that one single that you care about so much, and before I release the album on iTunes through CD Baby and through Spotify on CD Baby, etc., I'd take that one single and I'd put it on SoundCloud and I'd put it on YouTube and let people listen to that single for free prior to the launch of the full album. And I, I'd get it out there. I'd promote it, promote it, promote it on my socials. I'd get as many people sharing it as possible. Do all the same promotion that you do just to get people listening to this album. And in terms of distribution, I'd really focus hard on YouTube. A lot of people don't know this, but YouTube is actually the number one music distribution platform out there. More people listen to music on YouTube than anything else. And so if you want to get your music out to a wide audience, YouTube is a must. And there are many different routes that you can take to putting your single on YouTube. You know, the perhaps the least labor-intensive option is to do what's called an album art video, where you just have the single playing on YouTube and then your visual component is just a still shot of your album artwork. Or you could be a still shot of your band or something, just like, you know, a picture, and then the music is playing. And that's, you, know, you can make that video in five minutes. Um, if you want to kind of graduate up to maybe the next level, make a lyric video. Lyric, all the big artists these days put out a lyric video before they, you know, do much else because, you know, it gives people a chance to read your awesome lyrics. And, um, you know, as the song is playing, the lyrics are being displayed on the, on the screen as kind of a sing-along format. And you can do some pretty creative things with lyric videos. You don't just have to do, you know, here, here's the, you know, words just splattered on the screen. You can, you can kind of do some fun, interesting things, you know, holding up placards or whatever, like, you know, some bands can get really creative with it, but that's the next best option. Or, but really, if you, if you want to get the most impact, if you want to get the most people listening to this single to kind of eventually promote your album, make a full fledged music video, make something catching and interesting that others are going to want to share on your socials. And I know you're thinking, Oh God, that sounds really expensive. It doesn't need to be big budget. You know, don't, don't feel like you have to create, you know, something that came out of industrial light and magic. It can be low budget, but what your focus should be is not looking expensive, but looking interesting. You want something that needs to have a hook. I've seen so many artists who make these beautiful music videos that I can tell they spent a lot of money on and they're not getting any traction on it because it's a beautiful video, but it's just not interesting. It, it's not getting anybody to go, oh, this is cool. I need to share this with my friends. And sometimes interesting videos with hooks that make people want to share don't have to be expensive. Look at a, you know, the OK Go video. Here it goes again. They were just dancing on treadmills. That couldn't have been an expensive video, but it had a hook. People said, oh my God, I have to share this treadmill video with my friends. So focus on getting a hook. Focus on putting something in your video that make people go, oh, this is interesting. I need to share it. And that's how you'll get the most juice for your single. And of course, make sure that that video references when your album is coming out so that you can ultimately serve the big goal that you're trying to do, which is getting the word out. And before I leave this question, let me make a bigger point 
about releasing singles versus albums? Because right now, from what you were telling me in the question, you're looking at releasing one single and then plopping out the album. And I'd give that a little bit more thought because the music industry is changing. It's becoming a singles business now more than ever. Now, we used to have to put out albums because we used to have to sell music physically, and it made more sense to group songs together in one chunk because that was easier than, you know, sending them out one at a time because, you know, transportation costs and trucks and supply chains were all expensive. But now distribution is free. It's all digital. And, you know, promotion is free. It's all social media. So the value in grouping songs together in one big chunk is getting smaller and smaller. And so ask yourself whether you actually think you need to release an album per se, or if you're only doing it because that's the way your favorite musicians did it. Don't feel like you have to do the traditional album release model just because it's been the norm in the music industry so long. You might want to consider releasing all of your singles one at a time, perhaps giving each of those singles its own music video so you can really take advantage of this YouTube platform, treating every single release as its own promotion event. And that way you have, you release the singles throughout the year and, and you always have something to talk about throughout the year. It's not just you release an album and then you have 12 months of nothing to go out because you already released your album and now you're working on the next album. Releasing singles, focusing more on singles and EPs can help give you spread more awareness for your music, at least in the early going in your career where it's all about just trying to get as many fans as possible. And, and you can always still release the album because after you release your 12 singles, now you have 12 singles, plop them together on an album, put that on CD, baby, and you can still have your album release. But focusing more on singles allows you to release music throughout the year and serve your ultimate goal as an early career indie artist, which is promoting awareness of the fantastic music you're putting together. I might have answered more of that question <laughs> than was actually uh, in the question, but hopefully there are some good tips in there. All right, folks, Aaron M. Jacobson coming up next. Don't go anywhere. Keep listening to the Break the Business podcast. Ryan here from the podcast. Shameless plug time. My new book, Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry is now available in paperback and an ebook. The book talks about how you can be your own boss in your music career and take control of your content creation, promotion, distribution, and fundraising. Get your copy on Amazon by searching Break the Business. It's a nice read for musicians and the people who love them. That's Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry. Thanks very much for your support. Welcome back to the Break the Business Podcast. She is a Los Angeles-based entertainment lawyer who specializes in representing musicians and other entertainment professionals. She is an acclaimed writer and speaker who has been featured in Forbes and is also the founder of Indie Artist Resource, a legal and business protection platform for musicians. You can find out more about her work by visiting www.themusicindustrylawyer.com and www.indieartistresource.com. Ladies and gentlemen, we're happy to welcome back Aaron M. Jacobson, on the Break the Business podcast. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, so excited to have you. I have let entirely too much time pass by in between having you on the show. That is my fault. I feel terrible. Okay. Well, I guess I can forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, for the new listeners that have, uh, aren't familiar with the stuff that you do, can you mm -hmm. tell the folks a little bit about the legal work you do and why you focus so much of your work on musicians and independent artists? Correct. Well, my entire practice is focused on music uh, and music work. Um, so I represent songwriters, composers, artists, uh, music publishers, independent labels and companies, producers, managers, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so I, I'm a transactional attorney, which means I just handle contracts. So I draft, review, negotiate all the different types of contracts in the music industry. Um, a lot of those in my practice, particularly my practice is quite heavy on music publishing and licensing. So I do um, especially a lot of those types of deals. And um, I do also a lot of work with legacy clients and their catalogs and um, deal with copyright terminations and managing their catalogs and 
uh, purchase and sale of their catalogs and things like that. I love. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go. Oh, I was just going to explain briefly what indie artist resources, but, um, Feel free to jump in if you have a comment. No, no. Um, I, I, I endeavor to ask you all about Indie Artist Resource because okay. that is a fantastic platform. And indie artists are so lucky that there's an entertainment lawyer out there that's putting all of that great information in one resource. But before we jump into that, because uh, I mean, there's so much stuff to talk to you about, because again, we've let way too much time pass by before having mm-hmm. you on. But the timing of having you on this week is great because it's the beginning of the year. And we were talking in the first segment, Aaron, that a lot of musicians see the new year as an opportunity to start things fresh, you know, start with some good best practices, start the year off right. And I've found personally that the new year can be a great opportunity for musicians to get their legal house in order. So mm-hmm. can you give us a couple uh, example of a couple legal type activities or projects that musicians can look into doing in the new year to kind of start things off on the right foot? Yeah, I would say either if there's things that you haven't done that you've been meaning to do, do them. Or if you're not sure what to do, find out what to do. So um, the things that I see that get, you know, kind of left behind a lot are uh, registrations for copyright, registrations for performance rights organizations and other royalty collection services, as well as not getting contracts in place when they need to be in place. So for example, when songwriters or artist writers are co-writing with other people, they're not putting songwriter split agreements in place. Um, Or somebody's recording an album, they're working with a producer, they're not putting a producer agreement in place. Uh, So really, I think what to do is now it's it's a new year, it's a fresh start. Vow to really get your affairs in order and make sure that you are protected moving forward in your career, whether that, whether that be registering for things that you should be registering for or making sure the proper contracts are in place so that you are um, protected. It sounds like in the new year, it could be valuable for artists to look ahead for the, over the next 12 months Think about some of the deals that they're going to be doing a lot of. If it's a lot of making music, you're, you're going to know you're going to need copyright, uh, you know, registrations taken mm-hmm. care of. If you're going to be working with producers and songwriters a lot, you're going to need those producer agreements and split sheet agreements. And start. So look at look into the horizon and think about what paperwork you're going to need over and over, and start getting that paperwork together now so that you don't Correct. forget about it later. Correct. Or you have enough time to get it together rather than, oh, wait, now that this opportunity has come up and I'm working with this person and I don't have an agreement to give to them. Oh, true enough. I'm, yeah. I've seen that one happen way too right. often. Right. And then there. you're calling a lawyer going, well, I need it like tomorrow. Yeah. And it's like, well, no. We actually already started working together. So is it possible for you to go back in time and draft the contract last week? Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. And a lot of that documentation, or at least some forms of it, are available at your platform, Indie Artist Resource, right? Correct. Correct. And that is a situation where if you really need it by tomorrow, you can get it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I started this um, separate company outside of my practice called Indie Artist Resource, which is the independent musician's resource for legal and business protection. And it's a, an e-commerce website that offers... Um, template contracts. Um, It does offer consultations as well, but that's for California residents only. Um, But the templates are available to everyone. And there's songwriter split agreements, there's producer agreements, there's management agreements, there's uh, work for hire, there's master ownership, video ownership, artwork ownership, a whole bunch of different uh, different templates on there that are the most needed by independent musicians. And you just go on the site, you pick what you need, you can either purchase them individually, or there's also packages of uh, agreements that come together. And then it's like a little bit less expensive than buying them all individually. And then you can just download the forms and they come with instructions on how to complete them. And then you have uh, some contracts in place. And the website also offers some educational materials as well, some uh, video lectures and audio lectures, um, things like that uh, for some education. But I think the, uh, the templates are 
um, probably the, you know, the biggest part of the, of the site. That's the stuff that the musicians probably get the most excited about. Yeah. I mean, I think the (laughs) educational stuff is really good for them as well because it, um, you know, it helps teach them about things that they might not know how to do. Um, but, but yeah, the templates are, are the ones that are probably most used because, you know, they need them in their sessions and stuff. Well, be sure to check out the educational resources as well, musicians out there. I know the temptation is just to be like, all right, I, I see the piece of paper. I see this template. I can take this and go, but learn some things along the way too. that platform is just a font of knowledge. And the fact that Aaron has so graciously created this for musicians. So you have this kind of one-stop shop to get the things that you need to get your legal situation in order for the new year is fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for putting that together, Aaron. That's yeah, great. my pleasure. I just, you know, there were all these, um, I was getting a lot of independent musicians calling me that needed assistance in this way, needed contracts and whatnot, but they were not quite at the level where they were ready to hire an attorney. And I just felt that I needed to do something to, uh, to help out, um, you know, this population of musicians. So, and then one day the idea just came to me. So, um, you know, I'm happy that it's a, that it is a valuable service to, to people. Fabulous. And you can find that again at IndieArtistResource.com. While I have you here, Aaron, I want to legal nerd out with you a little bit. There's a a couple pretty interesting legal developments that have happened that uh, I think implicate indie artists in a way. And so, and I know that, you know, you're pretty knowledgeable about this stuff because last year or last week, I should say, uh, you were on the Sirius XM business radio uh, channel talking about a couple big legal issues facing the music industry. The first is a lawsuit that just popped up in which the music publisher Wixen Music is suing Spotify for $1.6 billion. That is billion with a P, folks. What is going on there? I thought Spotify just got through resolving a major lawsuit about uh, music publishing, and now they're in another one. What's happening? Okay, so Spotify's been in a lot of lawsuits. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So in 2016, Spotify went through a big settlement with the NMPA, the National Music Publishers Association, for failure to pay mechanical royalties. And then in 2017, there was a class action. Well, there were a couple lawsuits that got combined into a class action, and that's known as the Fer- the Lowry-Ferrick or Ferrick-Lowry um, lawsuit. And that got to the settlement agreement but the settlement has not yet been approved. And Wixen was one of the publishers that opted out of that settlement and uh, was actually sort of advocating for it to not be approved because when you calculated the liability, and that settlement was also a, a huge multi-million dollar settlement, But when you actually broke down how the money would be paid out and then after, so first the attorney's fees got taken out and then after what was left, when it would be distributed, the liability for infringement turned out to be about $3.82 per, you know, per person and or per infringement. And to be fair, that is like 10 billion spins on Spotify. So. Yeah, and so, uh, <laughs> but Wixen and some other people felt that 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 was not that was not enough. It was not um, adequate. Sure. And so, so they didn't participate in the settlement. Then there were there was another two more lawsuits. One from um, Bob Guadio, who is. Uh, famous for, uh, if you've seen Jersey Boys, he's one of the members of the Four Seasons, and he's a writer and producer of a lot of big hits. So he sued, and then um, another administration company called Blue Water Services Corporation sued, and then there was another lawsuit with seven other independent publishers joined together. Um, And then we, which I think we'll discuss in a minute, um, we 
they introduced a new bill into Congress called the Music Modernization Act, which seeks to overall overhaul how all this licensing is done, but in that process also limits the uh, right to sue and the liability to the actual amount of infringement. And so any lawsuits brought after January 1st, 2018 would be potentially limited by this bill. And so then that is why uh, Wixon decided to file and file quickly and get it in before the end of 2017 so that they were able to seek the full amount of statutory damages, which statutory damages are $150,000 per infringement. Wow. So, yes, you did bring up the Music Modernization Act, which... You know, I you, you certainly will know a lot more about than I do, and so I'm you know interested in talking to you about this. It it looks like it's a licensing reform bill, and we've seen a few of these kind of pop up in the most recent Congress that seem to be about like making some reforms to help artists get paid, but in exchange, artists sort of lose some ability to sue on the back end. Can you talk a little bit about what this bill does and? Do you think is this a good bill for indie artists if it gets passed? Is this going to be a, a win for indie artists because it helps them get paid, or is this a loss because they lose some ability to advocate for their legal rights? Right. So the the point of the bill was okay. So firstly, it's a large overhaul of Section One Fifteen of the Copyright Act, and Section One Fifteen is the section that provides for the compulsory licenses. So right now, if Spotify or another digital service provider wants to use uh, someone's music and their service, um, rather than going directly to the rights owner, they can um, send a notice of intent um, to that rights owner and they get the compulsory license through the copyright office and they send the notice of intent to the rights owner and then the rights owner needs to submit their W-9 and whatnot so they can get paid. Um, But this is part of this problem that you know, the service providers, they send out all these NOIs to the people that they can find and they can't always find all the rights owners. And so then those people don't get paid or the NOIs don't go out correctly. Um, and then publishers are like inundated with the NOIs. So it's not really an efficient system. So this legislation seeks to overhaul that. And it really does have a lot of benefits, like the creation of a central database to locate rights owners, which is something that we don't have right now in the industry that we've actually really needed for a very long time. (laughs) And it's going to be a public database. And the bill also puts in place a centralized and streamlined process to obtain mechanical licenses. It reforms the procedures and how the mechanical royalty rates are set. So right now they're set by these old standards, and this bill seeks to switch it to a willing buyer, willing seller standard in an attempt to raise the rates and have songwriters and rights owners paid more fairly for the use of the music. So rather than it being like 0.00007 cents, um, they're hoping to get uh, better rates that are, that compensate people more fairly. And the fact that there's this database and there's this streamlined process, um, it would also then help more people to get paid more regularly. And hopefully trying to eliminate a lot of this, like we can't find these people and et cetera, et cetera. So the other thing is that the digital service providers, which if people don't know who the digital service providers are, those are like the big digital companies like Spotify, Amazon, Google, et cetera. Um, they would actually be funding the creation of this database and licensing scheme. So the the goal of the bill was to get everybody on board, to get the digital service providers on board, to get broadcasters on board, to get uh, the music community on board, so that everybody could cooperate and you know and and get this system working again. But 
And it really can revolutionize the way that music is licensed. But there is some opposition, as was shown by this Wixon lawsuit, because part of the concession in getting everybody on board for this bill is that the rights to sue and the liability of recover or what you can recover for infringement is going to be limited. And that was sort of the concession to get the digital service providers and the music users on board for this and to fund this whole thing. And the other issue that some people are not really happy about is that as part of this database, um, not only will it list who who the rights owners are, like if you have a composition and it'll say, here are the writers and here are the publishers, like you would see if you looked it up on ASCAP or BMI right now, they would also make the ownership shares public. And a lot of rights owners <laughs> don't want to don't want to reveal that information. So they, you know, there are sort of concessions on both sides and they're just trying to make everybody, you know, come to a consensus where everybody can, can live with it. So from an indie artist perspective, the part that they would have a better chance of getting paid and probably get paid more is great. Um, usually the indie artists are not the ones that are the ones suing for infringement, but, um, you know, for, for the publishers and, um, you know, people that are really, you know, making making the bigger deals in the industry um, or have the more successful songs, even if it's still independent, um, you know, it presents a, a bit of a problem. But I don't know that, you know, are we ever going to get something that's going to make everybody happy? Um, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. So I think they've done a good job, but there are it, there are still some issues that people are concerned about. One of the things I've found with copyright legislation is, you know, they always get proposed and some well-moneyed interest group kills it because it doesn't serve their interests very well. And so we've seen a lot of copyright legislation in this Congress, which would seem to be a more favorable Congress to pass copyright reform than we've seen before. And none of them have been able to succeed. Do you think this one has a better shot? Well, that's, again, that's why the digital service providers are involved with this and they got them on board from the beginning. Because if they just introduced another bill about, hey, we need better rates and you need to license better, uh, we would get a lot of lobbying opposition from the digital service providers that have billions of dollars behind them to fight it. So by getting them on board to begin with, there's a lot, not to say that no one could oppose it, but there's a lot less, uh, lesser chance of that. So this is the Music Modernization Act we're talking about, folks. And this is uh, something that you're going to want to follow as an indie artist, because as Aaron suggested, it could be a piece of legislation that gets you paid more easily when your stuff's on something like Spotify, could get paid more if that willing buyer, willing seller standard goes through and, and leads to higher uh, mechanical royalties. And it could also have some implications on your ability to sue if, you know, something happens down the road with one of your uh, copyrights. So you, you're, it's definitely something you want to look at, you want to follow, see if it gets passed, because it's going to have significant effects on your career as an indie artist. Uh, before we let you go, Aaron, uh, two more questions. One, how can people find you on social media if they want to keep the conversation going? Yeah, so my Twitter is EMJ Music Lawyer. I think pretty much everything else is music industry lawyer. Um, but if you go to my website at themusicindustrylawyer.com, it has all the little icons for all my different social medias. So people can just <laughs> click on whatever one they want and follow me. Marvelous. So, and I have a newsletter if anyone wants to subscribe to that. So I send things out every month and uh, so that way people can keep up with my articles or my videos or, you know, what I'm putting out there to keep people updated on what's happening in the industry. Yeah. Um, great articles and great videos. And I know, I think pretty sure I've said this to you before, but kudos for managing to snag the music industry lawyer, uh, domain <laughs> name. Woo. Uh, well done. Um, before we let you go, last question, do you have any last tips to share with the indie artist listeners out there to help them move their careers forward? 
Yeah, I again, I think it goes back to what we started talking about in the beginning is to make sure that you have protections in place and that things are set up properly because it's much, it might be a little expense up front, but it's better and easier to set things up right and protect yourself properly in the beginning than to not do that and then later have a problem and have to go back and try and fix things. So it's, it's an investment in your career. And, you know, like you said, it's a fresh start. It's a new year. So it's time to start thinking about your career as a business and an actual career and make sure that the the proper documentation is in place and consider the cost to be an investment in your business. And if there's anything that's offered to you, any sort of contracts that are offered to someone, um, to make sure that an experienced, knowledgeable music attorney is reviewing those because I get a lot of people that will sign something and, or, and sometimes even do have an attorney, but the attorney doesn't explain it to them properly. So make sure that you actually, you have someone review and you understand what you're signing. Um, because then later you don't have to come back and go, Oh, I didn't understand this. And I didn't know that it was a bad deal. And now can you get me out of it? Because that happens to a lot of people. So you want to proceed intelligently and make informed decisions. And so arm yourself with knowledge and the right people around you so that you can make informed decisions about your career and make sure that you're protected. Yes. Take care of your legal situation on the front end because it's a lot easier and cheaper than trying to do it on the back end and you know, fixing mistakes that were made. Uh, you can check her out at www.themusicindustrylawyer.com and be sure to visit indieartistresource.com to get all kinds of great templates and education resources uh, for your legal and business needs in the music industry. Aaron, thank you so much for joining this week. We'd love to have you on again real soon. Be sure to not be a stranger. No problem. Happy to be back whenever you want me to. Beautiful. So. We'll be right back on the Break the Business podcast. Friend of the show, John Ratzenberger here with Ryan Carella, author of Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry, available on Amazon.com. Ryan, tell the folks a little about the book. Well, the book's about empowering Well, artists. that's fascinating, Ryan, but it's only a 15-second commercial. Thanks. Welcome back, everybody. Our thanks to Aaron M. Jacobson for joining us in the previous segment. Be sure to check her out at www.themusicindustrylawyer.com. I can't believe she got that domain name. That was very impressive. And visit IndieArtistResource.com for a lot of great legal and business resources for your music career. She is the best. I am so thrilled that she makes time for us. We are so lucky to get somebody as knowledgeable as her as somebody somebody who cares as much about the indie artist as she does to share her wisdom with us um she writes for forbes she's on satellite radio a lot just she's the best oh so so thrilled that she is in our lives oh i normally don't do this i normally don't recommend tv shows on this podcast but i want to make a tv recommendation uh for tomorrow for monday um the college football national championship is tomorrow, and I'm not the sort of person who would watch a lot of sporting events in which I don't have a rooting interest. And this, I'm a University of Miami Hurricanes fan, as you all know if you've listened to this podcast at all. And you know the Hurricanes aren't in this game; it's Alabama and Georgia. And I normally wouldn't watch a TV sporting event in which. I don't have a team that I'm rooting for, at least a team that I'm not harshly rooting against in there. And so normally I wouldn't recommend watching the Alabama-Georgia National Championship game, but I do want to recommend the one tomorrow. But I don't recommend watching the normal telecast. I'm sure the normal telecast is going to be great, but that's not where my recommendation lies. Instead, if you want to try something different for the National Championship game, I would strongly recommend going on to ESPN3 and watching the Dan Lebitard show Megacast on ESPN3 of the national championship game. Again, ESPN3 is the online platform. Don't try looking through your channels. But where, where? I see one and two, but I don't see ESPN3. Yeah, it's it's online. 
what ESPN is doing, which I think is a really cool idea, is in addition to just the regular TV broadcast of the national championship game, they're having a bunch of mega casts where they're having different groups of people like coaches and other players watching the game and commenting on it on separate platforms. So you can watch the regular broadcast or you can watch a group of people watch the game. And the one that they're doing with the Dan Lebetard show, I highly recommend because I think this is going to be really cool. If you're not familiar with this show, this is a local radio show that they do down in Miami. Uh, they've been doing this show for since 2004. It was a local show produced down in Miami. I've been listening to it religiously since it first came out. I think it is the best radio show out there. They do a really good job. And it was a local show for about 10 years or so. And then it went national on ESPN radio and it's become really popular. And I love it because it's a sports show, but it's not really a sports show. Like they crack jokes. It's, it's comedy, it's pop culture. They don't take sports seriously, which I really love. And when I found out that the Lebetard show is going to be doing a mega cast where basically the, the cast members of the Dan Lebetard show are going to be watching the national title game and commenting on it and, you know, sort of doing their own broadcast of it, that has to be good. And so if you're looking for a way to watch the national championship game and it's, and, and have it be something different and not traditional, you're really going to love this. It's going to be so funny. And frankly, I don't know why more televised sporting events aren't broadcasted this way. I mean, why does every television sports broadcast have to be stuffy announcers? Why does it have to always be the play-by-play -play guy and the color guy and they talk about X's and O's and let's take it over to the sideline reporter and have her interview the coach that will tell her nothing and then back to the play-by-play -play guy? It's... I'm not saying there I'm not saying that we need to get rid of that. Like for hardcore sports fans who really love the X's and O's, cool. Keep that. But I think that more televised sporting events should have other viewing options where if you just want to listen to a few funny people watch the game and crack jokes and have a good time, then they should have that option. I, I think the mega cast concept with people like the Dan Lebetard show should be done more often. F frankly, the most fun I have watching sports on TV is not watching while listening to the announcers. You know, it's watching the game, surprisingly, with musicians. Whenever I'm watching a game with my musician friends, I have the most fun because those musicians are creative people who crack jokes, who throw in some pop culture references, who make me laugh the whole time watching the game. And I don't know why... ESPN and all these TV networks don't try to replicate that kind of experience more. I mean, not just having my friends on as a mega cast, but having, I mean, that'd be cool too, but having creative people, having funny people, having comedians, having, you know, folks like that watching the game and commenting on it just to crack jokes and make it fun. And I think that could be interesting. So if you want to try something different with your national championship game on Monday, Go check out the Lebetard Show Megacast on ESPN3. I really think you're going to like it. It's going to be fun and interesting, and so that's my TV recommendation. Before we sign off this week, how about one last listener question? Well, I don't know why I'm asking you, because I get to make this decision for myself. You know, I can't hear what you're saying. If, if I just said, hey, how about one last listener question, and you guys are going, no, I'd have no way of knowing. But this is a good listener question, so trust me, you're going to want to hear it. Uh, the, they write in, Dear Ryan, who owns a piece of a master recording when it is created? Everyone who plays on it does work for higher matter. This is such an important question. Because very few recordings out there are made with just one person's work and only one person's work. I mean, it happens. There, there, are, there are plenty of people out there who do everything on their project. They write the songs, they play the instruments, they sing, they produce, they master it, they edit it. It's all them. They are a one man or woman show. That happens, but that tends to be more the exception than the rule. Generally, in any recording project, there are lots of people who are involved, at least in a small way. And so when lots of people are involved in the creation of a recording, the question has to be asked. Who among that big pile of people that made this recording owns the copyright, or at least owns a piece of copyright, to that recording that is created? Let's look at it this way. 
think about who the typical cast of characters would be on any recording project. Let's say we have something where a solo singer-songwriter is making an album. I think we can all agree that the certainly the solo singer-songwriter owns a piece of the copyright in this recording. It's their album. So we're all we can be all be on board with that one, but what about the other people who participated on the recording? How about the musicians who worked on the album, you know, session musicians, do they own a piece of the recording? How about backup singers? Do they own a piece of the recording? How about the producer of the recording? How about the engineer? How about the the folks who mastered the work? How about the guy who delivered pizzas to your studio at 11 p.m.? Do they own a piece of the copyright? They all helped make the recording. Or I'll give, I'll give you an example from my own life. About, gosh, was it 10 years ago, maybe? I was at a house party. Um, and a musician at the house party just came up to everybody in the house party and said, hey, I've been working on an album in the back, and I need all of you to come into the room and just shout, hey, as loud as you can. And so we went awesome, and we all walked into his little studio that he had in the back, and he pointed a microphone in front of two dozen of us that we all had, you know, at least a couple drinks in us, and so we were, you know, all good and lubricated for this, and and he just, you know, held the microphone in front of the two dozen of us, and then pointed at us, and we all went, hey! And then, you know, a few months later, you know, he said, hey, look at your album. And, you know, so he had this song and in one part of the song, he's got us going, hey, and it was a part of the song. To all of us who went, hey, at his party when we were all, you know, a little drunk, are we part of the copyright? Do we own a piece of the copyright in all of this? All the people that we talked about, they all helped make this recording, the musicians, the, uh, the session singers, the engineers, the producers. So who owns the recording and who doesn't own the recording? And this has big implications because if you're the co-owner of a copyright, that gives you an entitlement to certain things. Technically, you would get a percentage of the money that the copyright generates. You get royalties and you theoretically would have some ability to determine how to exploit the work. The general rule is that unless the parties contract otherwise, co-owners of a copyright all have equal right to exploit the work as they see fit, as long as when the money comes in, they share it with everybody who owns the copyright in a manner akin to how much their percentage ownership is. So anybody can go out and make money off their copyright, but they have to share it with the fellow copyright owner. So that means a lot. Co-owning a copyright has a lot of implications. So you, as an artist, you don't want to make sure that you want to make sure that every person, <laughs> let me rephrase, as an artist, you don't want every person who came within a hundred feet of your recording to have the same rights that you have over the recording. You may not want the session musicians to own a piece of the copyright. You certainly don't want the guy who delivered pizzas <laughs> at 11 p.m. to your studio owning a piece of the copyright. You certainly don't want all the people drunkenly at the party going, hey, owning a piece of your copyright. So how do you, how do you navigate that? Um, how do you figure out who owns a piece of the recording and of equal importance, who doesn't own a piece of the recording? And here's the general rule. Generally, uh, courts will find that when there's a big disparity between the amount of contribution that the main people put into the work, like the featured artists and the other contributors to the work, then the smaller contributors generally aren't considered to be co-owners of the copyright unless there was intent with everybody involved to make those people co-authors. So if you only contribute a little bit, if if there is an intent to make those people co-authors, then they're probably not co-authors. So does the person who did a little bit of engineering work on a few recordings of your album necessarily own the copyright to those recordings? Maybe not. But, and here's a big but, here's what you have to do to protect yourself. If you're an artist who's making a recording and you have others that are helping out with this recording and you don't want them owning the copyright because they're just contributors to your project, don't leave it to chance. Take those session musicians, those backup singers, those producers, those engineers, the people saying, hey, on the microphone, you know, at, your, at a party while they've had a couple drinks in them. Make sure they all sign something that says that the contributions that they're making to your recording are a work for hire and that they don't have rights in the recording. 
you know, don't leave this to chance. A, a recording is a big undertaking. You're putting a lot of time and resources and money into them. Make sure that you have all those copyright T's and I's crossed and dotted. But when you're making this document, don't do it yourself. Please don't do it yourself. Be sure to talk to an experienced attorney. Make sure that they put together a document for you that will get the job done. Copyright can be very tricky. Don't try to do this yourself. Find a very good lawyer and they can put a document together for you that will make sure that only the people who should be owning a piece of the copyright own a piece of the copyright to your recording. All right, our thanks to Erin M. Jacobson for joining us this week. She was fantastic, and hey, you guys are all fantastic, too. I'm looking forward to an exciting 2018 with all of you. Let's kick this year's ass. Let's make all of our resolutions come true. Keep on listening to the Break the Business podcast. We'll see you next week. 